Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are here uh, waiting for this exciting event on campus here, the commencement, our December um, mid-year graduation, our favorite event. I was going to try, event. Mike, uh, to get a picture of us in our academic gowns for the Let the Bird Fly Instagram. So if you guys see a picture up there, it'll mean I guilted Mike into it because I know he hates the very thought of it. Would that be a good way of describing it? Yes. I am not a fan of wearing um, that kind of stuff. And the having a picture with me and probably Instagram. So uh, you can look back, see if I succeeded or not. But sorry, go ahead, Mike. <laughs> I can't remember if we're on number five or six. I think we're on number six we're of number this. Six. Number six of our Winging It series on the life of Luther. Last time, uh, we took Luther from the University of Erfurt um, to the Augustinian uh, order. He is now an Augustinian friar. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, his day as, as a monk, really a, a friar, what that meant. And then I think we'll spend a, quite a bit of time on his ordination and the interaction with his father um, before and during and after, or I should say after the ordination um, service, or really his first mass is when he comes in and uh, his father comes and visits him. But maybe first, wait, I, I'd ask you this question. Some biographers make a big deal about the storm incident. And some people are kind of incredulous. They're like, okay, that's that's a nice story. When he goes into the Augustinian um, order, some of his, it seems his fellow um, friars are saying, this is like a Pauline event. This great this great man is, is, is being converted. And even later on, uh, it's a nice story for the Reformation to say, this is, this is his road. His road back to Erfurt was his road to Damascus. And so uh, Luther is the one who who does say later in life that it was influential in his decision to become a monk, and so I'll ask you, who's the uh, you're the Luther scholar in the room? It's just two of us, but you're the scholar. So, uh, what do you think? What what do you think about the storm incident? Was it a huge deal? Part of the deal um, that changed Luther from a law student to an Augustinian friar? Sure, I think there's probably two things to consider with that and I think the the first would be um, right this is a, a radical break that takes place so we we've already talked about we think a lot played into this over time but it, it would make sense that there's some event that precipitates it so you know whether or not the thunderstorm was as big as people picture it, it or as a Luther movie might have it it makes sense that there'd be a trigger most of us see this in our regular life as well that um, we can be building up to something, and then something finally triggers a, a decision. I think the second thing is it's important to remember that all of the Reformers would look back on their life through the lens of um, the reforming work that had taken place. Uh, Kelvin, I just had students finishing up with their oral exams. They come in to talk through the semester with me, and many students said, uh, you know, Kelvin, he's always looking at himself through the lens of Paul. And that's not something that Luther does as much, um, but it would make sense that, you know, these New Testament accounts of something uh, big happening, triggering something, would, uh, you know, as Luther's thinking about this event, that this would be in his mind of God having done the same with him. And we, we mentioned last time he called out to Mary when he cut his leg and calls out to St. Anne in the thunderstorm, and then he applies new meaning to that after after decades, you know, when he's looking back. 
And so I think there there clearly, I would say, was an event, um, whether it was as the movies picture it, I'm not quite sure. But it, it seemed to be, whether he was on the precipice of a decision like this already or not, this seemed to be what moved him over, you know, what, what finally pushed him that way. And so I think in that sense, it's important. Um, but then we remember, these are all things he's looking back years later at and and uh, and seeing through that lens, too. Yeah. I don't think he would have mentioned it all these years later had it not been uh, an important factor. Sure. I think about certain people, certain books that and I've read. And not to interrupt, but his friends are shocked when he makes this decision. Yeah, that, I think that's probably maybe the, the strongest evidence for it is um, at least part of the reason why he, why he changed course. I, I think about books that I look back at and say, that was the book that changed me on this thought. That was the book that made me think in a different way. And then I'll reread books and I'll go, oh, they, they weren't that, maybe that great. Or I'll reread other books of that that I read at the same time and it said the same thing. And, and so in our memories, and sometimes it just hits us the right way. Sometimes it, it, it just kind of, it's already brewing there, but there's something, like you said, that pushes us uh, over the edge maybe. So he's an Augustinian friar now, and we mentioned last time that his location didn't change much, and really maybe his day-to-day life didn't change all that much, and yet it was quite a bit different. He's still doing academic work. He's still going to continue to be a student. He is going to be working towards the priesthood. And I think maybe two things that we should point out, and I'll, I'll ask you, Wade, is, is one is he's forced now to be into Scripture, uh, literally memorizing the Psalms after going through them all, all the time during the, um, uh, the hours, the service, um, the various service throughout the hours of the, of the church day uh, in the monastery. Um, but also then really coming to this conclusion of what does God want from me? And if it's a certain level of perfection working towards that, and I can't do this, what is God to me then? Is he love anymore, or is he a monster to me? So, Wade, I'll leave it to you to talk about uh, those two things, if, if you can. Yeah, I think it's interesting that early on, it appears, Luther actually did find peace in the monastery. So his initial year or two, um, maybe even a little bit beyond that, he, he kind of even talks about he thought he should confess pride because he found so much peace in some of these things um, that he was nervous he was becoming prideful. So it would seem that at first the monastery accomplished somewhat of its goal of, of quelling whatever inner turmoil there might have been and making Luther feel at peace with God. It appears where the, the Anfechtung, the temptation, really comes in is after he's there a while and the things lose their, uh, you know, they don't glisten as much. Uh, and he begins to wonder now if these things are as great and ought to give the peace that they had given in the past. So I think that some people get on fire for Jesus and then it wears off and then you need something. I mean, this is, yeah, we all know this experience. And especially when you're coming from a work righteous angle, um, you end up bouncing from thing to thing. What was the other half of what you were asking, Mike? I I was thinking about his day to day life. He's still a student. He's doing, still doing academic, academic work as well. And, yeah. and then and then the point of he's kind of forced into the Bible. Yeah, and so I think first it's important to remember that he 
although he's not moving far in town, as we pointed out last time, he he deliberately chooses the order and the um, uh, the you know the Augustinian um, group that he joined. And there's two big reasons for that. They're affiliated with the university or very active with the university. Uh, and secondly, they have a really good library, and it was expanding at that time while he's there. So um, it was the expectation of monasteries with a good library for the prior or the abbot, whatever they were called at that spot, to ensure that the monks were learning. And, and so this is something that Luther was drawn to. As far as his day, uh, just to take a little bit out of Martin Breck's uh, three-volume biography of Luther, which is probably, you know, the most extensive one if you were looking for something to work your way through. It's pretty accessible as it's translated, but uh, it's long. But just to read a little bit here, a central element of the monastic life was the canonical hours. And so this is, uh, your day is marked by worship services, I guess we would call them. They began in the middle of the night with matins. When the bell rang, the monk had to rise, dress himself properly, cross himself with holy water, kneel deeply and reverently before the high altar, and then go to his place. And this was, you know, your daily way of entering the church. Um, matins began with a shorter Marian office, and then at 6 o'clock, prime was said, at 9, terse, at 12, sext. And in addition, there was a, a mass celebrated during the morning for the monastery as well. You'd have your midday meal, an hour of rest was observed, and then you'd have nones, is that right? Nones, I believe you say, Mike? Mm -hmm. And vespers would then be sung. Um, and then you'd have compline after the evening meal. Uh, and after compline, then silence was to be observed um, in the monastery. And then you would kneel and say the Salve Regina, and the Ave Maria. And being to the service on time, um, being in the proper state of mind for these, these were things that they were actually asked about in confessional services. You would have some confessional services where they would confess in front of each other more corporately, and then some where they were individual, but did they sing their best? Were they as attentive as they could have been? Were they on time to all of these services? And so the day was very much structured around uh, these services, and then you would have interspersed with that uh, study and prayer as well. That gives a little bit of a sense for the for the day um, and how that would have worked. And then, uh, oh, Mike, I keep I, my brain is fried. Well, maybe just one one thing, just sure. on that point, and then we can get to um, being forced into the Bible. Um, <clears throat> so when he enters, it's not like they go, "Hey." Here you're you're in there. There's a there's a period of, you know, where he's a novice. Um, the, the monks are serious here. They want to make sure that you are serious about uh, and this. The, so the Bible question with the novice, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah and then, you know, there's going to be certain rituals there. He's going to have a new garb, um, and, and the idea that that garb is kind of like a, a better baptismal uh, garment. Um, he's going to have a tonsure, that kind of stuff, and maybe I, I maybe was a little bit too, um, um, too sure of myself about you know his friars saw that as a, a Pauline thing, his his conversion, um, probably a little bit a little bit after that, people he knew, um, not necessarily from a from a Roman Catholic perspective, but you can kind of see that this, he's he's a special guy. He really takes it seriously. He's a talent. And so, uh, you know, that would have been noticed. And it was noticed in 
in his order. Um, yeah, so tell me about how, how he's going to get into the Bible now. i really kind of forced into it um, in a way where um, he wasn't before. Yeah, and I, I should have jumped to this first because that was, I think, the most important question you asked in those. It's It's important to understand at this time. Now, to dispel a myth first, well, the Roman Catholic Church chained up their Bibles. You've probably heard that said before. That's actually true, but they chained them because they were worth so much, and they wanted people to be able to read them and not someone steal them, uh, not to chain them up away from people. It's like the pen at the bank. Right, exactly. And uh, But it is true that you could have many people who advanced quite far in, th- in theology and did not themselves have their own personal Bible or have a lot of encounters with the Scriptures in drawn-out study. Uh, the, the Scriptures were, for many, uh, engaged, for the most part, through secondary sources. And so Luther talks about that uh, Andreas von Karlstadt, uh, so Karlstadt as we know him from where he's from, uh, was a doctor of theology and didn't have his own Bible for quite some time even, and thus was, you know, really impressed when Luther comes and he knows his Bible. Part of the reason Luther will know his Bible so well is it was the only book, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that was permitted to novices. So in your first year in the monastery, you could have the Bible, but you weren't in the library yet doing all the other stuff. And so Luther would talk later, we call it localgedeckness, right, that you can remember the location in a book. If you've had a book that you read a lot and you go, oh, I remember that, it's on the the top side of a page on the right side, and I think I put this mark there. He really knew that Bible backwards and forwards, and he says he wishes he still had it. At the end of the year, they would take it from you, um, and then you would be studying some of the books of the church. And uh, and he says he wishes he could have had that Bible, and he actually, I, I think, did get to keep his Psalter and really held on to that throughout his life, even when it was starting to fall apart. You've probably seen people, or maybe you're the kind of person that has a Bible that, that's way, that is that way too, and, and you're willing to put up with it almost falling apart because you know where everything is in it. Um, I think this is the value, too, of um, you know the Church being careful sometimes not to jump from translation to translation or text to text, because you do form a relationship with the book. Maybe that goes back to our free-for-all the other day. Part of the reason books can be better than com- computers is there's a, a physical relationship that develops. But this is when Luther would have... future Wisconsin Lutheran College students out there, we'll make you buy a Bible for our intro to Scripture class. Everybody asks me, well, can I just use my phone? No. Right. <laughs> you, need a, you need something physical. Yeah. And, uh, and so this is when Luther's really going to encounter the, the Bible very significantly and thoroughly. And this will affect how he will do theology for the rest of his life. Because he's marked by this, and he will very definitely become a biblical theologian. And by that, we don't mean that he knew all the commentaries, but he's going to be a biblical theologian. He's going to go to the scriptures. The scriptures will frame the questions. The scriptures will frame the method. And the scriptures will frame, uh, will provide the answers. And so this will be very important for him in this first year uh, in the monastery. And he definitely takes advantage of this Bible. I believe it was, it was either called a red Bible or it had a red spine, something red about it. But uh, but this became a, a very important development for him. Yeah, and then 
throughout the the canonical hours, you know, by the time he's done, he has the Psalms, not just one Psalm, the Psalms memorized. And they were very dear to him, uh, going so far as to say, if you just had the Psalms, you you would know everything that you needed to know. Um, uh, of course, you still need to know the facts of Jesus Christ. But um, and and we we have encountered wise old pastors who who agree with that, and only after you know living with the Psalms forever, um, we we go through the Psalms. Uh, the whole Psalter, pretty much one year in Matins at Wisconsin Lutheran College, we get to, to every one. He would have gone through them multiple times during a year. And so uh, even even our attempt at it is, is a far cry from what it was from the monastery. So he is also uh, studying and is going to be ordained as a priest. And so in um, it's May of 1507. He is ordained, and then he's going to celebrate his first Mass, which is a big deal, um, such a big deal that um, his father comes. And his father, who, who definitely was upset that he gave up on his law degree, he bought the expensive books for, for this law degree. He, he saw his son becoming uh, something more than a, than a minor or, or a merchant, somebody with... Um, uh, somebody with a, a sense of power or influence is probably a better word. Maybe getting a job for his his siblings, for his nephew, you know, future nephews, that kind of thing. Um, take the family to the next next level, and yet I think also Hans is still kind of proud that his son is going to be a priest. That's not that that's moving up in the in the medieval world too. And Possibly brings, proud. Uh, I mean there. There was some antagonism, you know, yep. at this time as well. And, and it could be Hans, the kind of upwardly mobile miner. Sometimes they saw, especially monks, as drains on the economy and leeches, you know, so to speak. So, so we don't know for sure. I'm, there's probably he gives maybe the big gift to the, um, the Augustinian. He knows how to yeah. make the gesture. Yeah. Yeah. He knows how to do. He he. I what I'm trying to get as he knows this is. All right, this is what's going to happen. He's going to play the game. He's going to Agreed, give a gift. Yeah. He's going to he and he's going to make a show. He's going to come with his we would call it kind of an entourage today, right? Um, and he's going to uh, he's going to be known who he is and that this is his son and he's going to if even if reluctantly give a gift towards this, he he's going to play that upper class kind of game of influence. What's really fascinating about this, and, and I'm not quite sure if this all happened at his ordination, it seemed to be that there was letters beforehand that kind of leads up to this, where uh, Hans and Luther, kind, uh, Hans and Martin kind of go back and forth of, you know, uh, kind of Luther says, don't you know I, I can do more for you as a monk, praying for you and the family and for people, think about that, Um and uh, uh, Hans at one point comes back, aren't you supposed to, you know, obey your father? And then he hits him right where it counts. Um, and I think one biographer says, you know, Hans, Hans pinpointed the, the weakness in the medieval, uh, medieval uh, religion uh, of Christianity at that time when he says, this, this mystical call you got from God, how do you know it wasn't from the devil, right? And, and it seems that that really hit Luther hard, right? And he had to wrestle with that 
uh, two things. Do I obey my father in heaven or do I obey my father on earth? How does that play out? I think he's going to see vocationally how that plays out. But also, um, was it really a call from God or was it something else? Well, and I think it, it, if we put ourselves in Han's shoes a little bit too, Luther doesn't go home and tell his parents what he's going to be doing. Um, Luther doesn't even go home to tell them he's made a decision. Uh, Luther throws this party for his friends and then says, goodbye, you know, I won't see you again. And then he's secluded in the monastery for a month. And uh, he doesn't get to explain his decision to his family. He just tells them by letter. So in a modern context, maybe imagine you're putting your kids uh, through college and now you've got them in grad school and you're working, you know, two jobs to put them through grad school and you get an email um, and next thing you know, they're, you know, secluded somewhere and they've made this big life decision. And so Hans actually withholds permission. Um, There was nothing he could do about Luther going into the monastery, but... uh, Formally to enter the monastery, he needed his father's permission, and Hans withholds that at first, and then he gives in when when basically he would have lost face if he didn't give in and give the permission at that time. But yeah, it's, it's maybe, let me jump ahead and then we'll get back to the Mass. It's after Luther gives his first Mass, uh, celebrates his first Mass, that Hans will say the thing you mentioned, that what if this was the devil who worked through this thunderstorm? And this was a possibility, especially in medieval thinking. But secondly, um, have you not heard the the scriptures say, honor your father and mother? And this would have hit Luther very hard in two ways. As A, he went into the monastery to get right with God, and now the doubt he's already wrestling with is exacerbated by the fact of, yeah, maybe he read the sign wrong. And then B, Luther's turning to the scriptures— and Hans quotes the scriptures um, in a way that indicates that Luther has made a, a poor decision. Um, and so this is uh, all the stuff that comes with a big life-changing decision all of a sudden comes into into play here and with his relationship with his father. Maybe, uh, Mike, we can hit on not every monk was a priest, but Luther's going to become a priest. And then as a priest, he's going to say his first Mass. And maybe you can hit on why become a priest or what went into becoming a priest. And then secondly, why he's so nervous about his first Mass. Yeah, I, I'll i maybe answer the second question first. Um, this is Christ's body and blood. I mean, there's, this is the medieval piety that he holds on to to the end of his life. Um, there's the story of him spilling... Uh, the blood later in life and and getting on the floor and looking it up. And I I don't think that's apocryphal. I'm not sure. Um, uh, No, I don't think so. Later in life. Yeah. So we got to be careful with the new Luther or the the young Luther and the old Luther on this one. Certainly people are going to change and develop. Absolutely. But the more information we have, like we've been saying so far in this Winging It series, is that he he had some pretty developed ideas uh, very early on, earlier on than 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 we think, and I don't know that, you know, certainly he develops his theology later on, but I don't see it as a direct line. Okay, he is he was Catholic and then he became Lutheran. O- okay, yes, yes, in a certain sense, okay, but the idea that he was evolving, that if he would have lived another 
you know, two decades than he would have been, you know, like reformed or something, you know, like he's, he's pretty thoughtful. All he's pretty thoughtful as a young man and as an old man. And so the point is here is that he really did hold on to the piety of this really is Christ's body and blood. And when you're handling Christ's body and blood, sacrificing um, it yeah. and then yeah, sacrificing and being a part of this sacrifice. Um, this is, this is salvation stuff. This is divine stuff. You're holding the most precious thing, the most dangerous thing in a sense that you could ever, ever hold. And just even the, even the architecture of churches back then is designed to hold the, the jewels of Christ's body and blood. It was a big deal. And so he's super nervous, right? And uh, he doesn't want to mess up. And as you know, when you're super new, nervous about messing up, that's when you, when you mess up. And uh, connected to that as well, if you think of the Old Testament and all the care that was supposed to be taken for the priests, that they're purified, that they're without sin when they offer a sacrifice, well, that was all carried into the, uh, the Mass books, the instruction manuals on how to celebrate the Mass, and so you would, you know, you would go to confession before, and you were to be um, a pure priest. You were to be a um, a good priest. Yeah, the um, specific confession, all this kind Luther of stuff. Luther knows his sins as he's doing this, so he is not only holding um, the body and blood of Christ. A, according to Catholic doctrine, he's making it the body and blood of Christ. Um, he's sacrificing it as they believed in the sacrifice of the mass. So for um, for the good of the church. Uh, and for his own good. And then on top of it, um, he's supposed to be doing so as a good, you know, upright priest. And part of the what he wrestles with in the monastery is you're confessing again and again your faults, your sins, your, your dispositions. And so it is overwhelming. And he's got, by the way, a father who's clearly less than thrilled uh, that his son is there doing this. And and then he can't go to, he, he can't find any pride with his father and say, well, my father's just a minor. He doesn't know his stuff because his father's quoting scripture to him. Um, and then there's going to be eventually a few years later, there's going to be quite a contrast when he goes to Rome and he's going to see the priest down there irreverently uh, saying masses very quickly. And we'll get to that next episode. Um, it, 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 I, I think there's something there. He would have not forgotten his first mass. And then to see the masses in the holy city of Rome done so uh, irreverently, uh, that had to be a strong contrast for him. And starting to see that this was just a transactional thing for a lot of people, that you just say the mass or you have a priest say the mass and then you're good. And there was no, really no connection with actually believing anything. And Erfurt had particularly stringent or clear warnings about saying a worthy mass and saying the mass rightly um, because it, apparently it was a problem in that area that people didn't take it seriously enough. And Luther's a member of an observant monastery, right? You join an observant monastery because you want to observe the rules. You want to do things right, um, R-I-G-H-T, but also rightly R-I-T-E-L-Y. And so there's a, a big concern for him. Did he not mess up in the front of his new brothers in the monastery? And uh, and that he not it was considered to be a sin if you were missing a vestment or if you you messed up messed up something in the rubrics. Um, and all of this had to, you know this had to be memorized for the most. I right. mean it had and not only 
uh, the words, but the the actions, and it, it's you it know, wasn't it's, it wasn't twenty first century American Lutheranism where if I'm in chapel and I mess up, everybody knows I'm going to crack a joke and then we laugh about it. This was not the environment. I mean, I think another thing important with this remember is this is Luther entering into not only then being a monk and studying and praying, but in the ministry. Right, he is now going to be a priest which when he gets to Wittenberg will involve a lot of preaching in the city church and then in the um, uh, the castle church, you know, the uh, the elector's church, um, hearing confessions. Although, interestingly, I saw he never heard a woman's confession in Erfurt, right, because he's not around women, and only three in Wittenberg, at least before the Reformation is all that he, he mentions. Um, but it's going to be a step towards Luther not simply being a monk and not simply being a university professor, but having a calling to the people in that community. Yeah, so we can look back and say, okay, his his time in the monastery certainly was where he was wrestling with these big questions, but it also prepared him quite a bit. You know, just start ticking off the things that probably wouldn't have happened if he wasn't in there. Well, he memorizes the Psalms. He's forced into studying the Bible. Um, he is made a priest so that now he's going to be pastoral. That's a huge deal. Um, he is going to be um, encouraged and pushed to get, um, uh, you know, eventually his doctorate, right? And so he, he is also going to eventually get administrative um, experience, right? Almost kind of reluctantly, he's going to become the provincial vicar eventually. Yeah. Of, of I these. mean, the amount of stuff he's doing administratively and preaching is amazing. And then, and then a lot of correspondence. He complains about, uh, you know, he needs his own um, secretary really to help out with that correspondence. So he's getting an education. It's not like he's on a high mountain somewhere cloistered away. He is getting an education, and he is super busy. And really, it's going to make him. Um, the man who is going to be able to really knock on the castle church door and say, we need to talk about this. And he's going to get his education. He's going to get a pastoral um, uh, experience. He's going to get administrative experience. And he's going to be pushed into the Bible. I think those are some keys. And I think, uh, yeah, I would say the big takeaways for us to remember out of this section would be um, he chooses a monastery once again where, where there is a good library and it is attached to the university. Um, he's going to read the Bible in his novitiate and his novice year. Um, he's going to become a priest. He's going to enter into public ministry, I guess, as we would talk about it in Lutheranism today. And he's going to have to deal with issues with his father, which I think will plague him for years. Eventually, he's going to get married, give them grandkids, and be known throughout Europe, um, not always uh, praised by all throughout Europe, but known, and I think we'll we'll see his father come around somewhat with that. But there's a lot going on all at once for him, and he's taking these things very seriously. That's why, as Mike said, he's nervous saying the Mass, um, but he throws himself into the Scriptures, and then he throws himself into the scholastic works he's supposed to be reading um, as a as a as a monk too. Although he will complain about those being a uh, you know rather rigid or, or you know they're, they're not. The scriptures. Yeah, and maybe one thing uh, to close, uh, you know, he is eventually going to, he does not become a full professor for a while, but in 1508, he is going to go to Wittenberg, which is important because then there's going to be a pull between Erfurt and Wittenberg, um, but he teaches on uh, Aristotle's ethics. And so he's going to have to wrestle with 
with Aristotle himself and the use of Aristotle in uh, with, with Thomas Aquinas and 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 the other and other scholastics, uh, he's going to be wrestling with some deep philosophical questions that that already kind of came up in his university days at Erfurt. Um, so he he you can really see the hand of God here preparing him in very short notice, right? In in a very few years. Um, to get ready for really reforming the church. So with that, unless you have anything else, Wade, uh, we're going to come back. How do I look? My, while, while we were talking, I put my uh, academic gowns on so I could be ready in 10 minutes to head over. <laughs> How does it look? It looks great, but I just can't handle the central Michigan colors. Yeah, Do I look very learned? You do. You need a hat. My hat is... Um somewhere under the zoom over there there you go so we look for that picture of of us two idiots in, <laughs> <laughs> in these uh ancient uh and uh, medieval type clothes um but we're going to come back with probably his trip to rome and we'll see how far we get after that until and I, the, I think hopefully too either before or after the trip to rome uh, just the role of the confessional in the monastery as oh well. yeah sure I, and this is going to be uh super important again we don't highlight enough that he heard confessions in wittenberg that was such a that's such a big deal. So until then, let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a tank. I set him up, another round, I set him up, another round, I set him up, another round, one more round won't get me down. I said, honey, honey, I don't care what the people are thinking.